0: amen he is alive wait well, hey, good morning gospel hope you may be seated if you can all right thank you worship team i really appreciate you guys setting the environment for us and helping us get our hearts dialed in on the you. amen oh, Well, hey if we have anyone who is visiting with us for the first time if you are a guest of gospel hope morning we just kind of throw your hand up Uh, I'd love to just show you some love. Praise God for you. I see you, I see. And if you did not have an opportunity to stop by the Connect table, we would love to uh, give you a small gift as well as get some information from you. I promise we won't spam you. Uh, We just want to make sure you stay connected and know what's happening in the life of this local body should you choose um, to um, want to know. Um, With that, I'm also excited to see all of you back for yet another episode of Courageous Faith as we continue our trek through the book of Joshua. So uh, we would, uh, if you are a Bible user, go ahead and take that out as you'll need it. And if you are a device user, you can go ahead and get it and begin moving your way over to Joshua chapter 10. That's going to be our first stop. And uh, let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, in the name of Jesus, this morning we come. And we pause and simply state, we need your help. You are God. You are a God who is our help in a time of need. We need your help. Such a small word, only four letters, but saturated with meaning and different meaning for every single person in this room as to how we need your help. Lord God, you know our address, you know our situation, you know how each one of us needs you, and while our circumstances are incredibly diverse, our need is very singular. We need you. Lord God, would you show up this morning for both us, those of us here and those virtually, those who might listen later in podcasts or wherever, Lord God, would you show up in our lives and definitively, boldly, and undeniably allow us to experience your help. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you've been trekking with us for the last few weeks, you'll know we are now up to Joshua chapter 10. We are up to Joshua chapter 10. So we've seen the Lord lead his people in a series of battles. And as you've heard probably in previous messages, um, the battles are won by the Lord himself, but his people have this unique way in which he calls us to participate. When I'm reading the book of Joshua, whether I read it slowly and I just kind of drag through each one of the particular passages or whether I read it quickly and I go from end to end, I am reminded of my great fascination with the career of Mike Tyson. Now I remember sitting on my grandfather's lap vaguely during the era of Ali and Hagler and Spinks, and Holmes and others, I remember being a little boy and watching the excitement in the room. As their favorite boxers would win, I, I, I vaguely remember those moments. I, I distinctly remember the moment, but the images are are not quite as clear as those in my own era, as I would call it, when I grew to enjoy and appreciate the career of Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, for me, was 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 similar similar in effect. Uh, to what the, 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 the impact that, that Tiger Woods would have on golf. Not same resume or accomplishments, two completely different sports, apples and oranges. But what I'm referring to is how you would have this character who is so dynamic in their performance that it would draw people who otherwise would not be compelled to pay attention into the sport. Begin paying all kinds of attention. I remember when Mike Tyson would come, you know, into the arena, he was so different no costumes, no fanfare. He would already have his shirt off. The black shorts, the boots, limited entourage. I mean, it was like they were coming into a business meeting. I love when the way Mike Tyson used to come into the room. No no gesturing, no clowning around, no, no, no smack talking or exchanges in the ring center. He was just so businesslike. I, I remember watching him as he was as he's ascending the ranks and looking at the stat line and I begin paying attention to details that previously I would not care about I would look at the tail of the tape right the the reach the height the weight the age and the record of the persons that he was going to to fight and I would I would wonder how each one of these things were going to impact the way he would win because I never had a question as to whether or not he would win. My only question would be how he would win. What would be the statistical phenomenon that we would be presented with tonight? Would it be a first round knockout? Would it be a standing eight count? meaning you've been pummeled to the point where the the referee intervenes and he gets in there and he starts to count and he's holding the other boxer's hands and he's trying to see if he's coherent or woozy, if he can go on, would it be a TKO? A technical knockout, meaning would he have knocked his opponent down so many times that the the referee would have to say, you know what, even though you're capable of getting back up, you're not able to continue in fighting. It's a medical risk at this point. Would it just be a straight up knockout, not a TKO? Like would the person would be left on their back in the arena and they would rush in the medical personnel? Would it be that kind of knockout? That's the only question I had. I never questioned whether or not Mike would win. It was only how. It reminds me of reading the book of Joshua. As I watch God win, chapter after chapter, I never question whether or not he will win. It's only how. When I think about the career of Mike Tyson, like like, to this day, he's still heralded as the most powerful boxer there ever was, even though he's not actively participating in the sport. I mean, Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson, technically in my mind was not beaten by anyone, he was beaten by himself. If you follow the career of Mike Tyson, while there's losses in the stat line, what really happened is his career began to plateau was, was that, that his, the, the, the stalling of his career wasn't because he lacked power or promise or potential. It was because of something that was happening outside the ring that inhibited his ability to continue as champion. It was someone that he was either married to or someone that he had allowed to come into his camp. There was something happening in his personal life that was impacting his prowess, but there was never a question of his power. So when I look at the book of Joshua and I look at the book of Judges, I get a similar detail. Have you ever read uh, Joshua and Judges together? You should. I would encourage you to do that because thematically, It's the same God with the same career, the heavyweight champion of the heavens and the earth, undisputed. But why is it that the win-loss record looks so differently in the book of Joshua? You see, I believe that there's some lessons that we can learn from the lives of the people found here in the book of Joshua if we handle the book the way it was handed to them. And that is this, the book of Joshua and Judges are given to the Israelites as a part of their history so that they could understand the record of their God so that they would in future and in current generations have undaunted and courageous faith. Knowing that their God always wins and there should never be a question when he enters the ring of his power, his presence, his potential, his promise, his capacity. And if there is ever anything other than a knockout, there's something we have to look at other than the ring. Who else has been allowed to come into the camp? Who else have we connected our lives to? And therefore, I believe that today's message, I hope, will, will drive home the following. That courageous faith must be married to consistent follow-through. Courageous faith must be married to consistent follow-through. Because, see, the, the primary difference between the Joshua generation and the Judges generation is not the God who had infinite power, who had all the promises and who had all the capacity and who had the winning record. It wasn't the God wasn't the difference. It was the people and who they let into the camp and who they decide to be married to, how consistent they were in following through on who God had revealed himself to be. And so I believe that if we look at these two books together, which I won't take you to both, but you need to understand that the difference between the Joshua and the Judges generation is who they married to and how consistent they were in follow through. If you don't believe it, just l- listen to these words uh, found at the, uh, uh, at the opening of the book of uh, Judges. You shall make no uh, covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed the voice. Why have you done this? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. That's these other lands. And you should, they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And then in verse 10 of the same chapter, and all the generation who were gathered to their fathers, that means that they died, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord and the work that he had done for Israel. And so this this turning of the channel, this seemingly change in career, this, 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 this thwarting of the win record, it isn't a loss of God's win record. But the difference between Joshua and the judge's generation is the failure to remember. They forgot certain things about the historic work of God and it unplugged their courageous faith. And so the Lord still committed to give them a winning record because he's got a winning record and they're kind of attached to him. He continues to bring about wins, but these wins do not come without some controversy. I would not only encourage you to read the books of Joshua and Judges together, but I got another one for you as a New Testament believer. I would encourage you to also read the books of Hebrews and James together. Now, when I say together, I mean like read them through and then go right into the next one. The fact that they sit as next door neighbors in the canon is no mistake. Thematically, I want you to see the difference in Joshua and Judges. It's really just one verse or one attitude made all the difference. When you go to the book of Hebrews, it talks about a group of people who have crazy faith. As a matter of fact, the, 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 the book of Hebrews is home to what we call the hall of fame of faith. These people who trusted God in these undeniable ways. And then what's immediately following the book of Hebrews? James. And what does James say? Yo, faith without works is dead. You can be as courageous as you want to, but you have to have some consistent follow through. If, if you want to experience what you just read about. So, I would encourage you to read those books in those way uh, together, and I think it'll be a great supplement to your faith. But uh, being that this is not read story time, I got to take a text and preach to you just a little bit. So, if you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of Joshua chapter 10. I'm assuming you're already there, even if you're the slowest turner of all time, because I asked you to do that about 10 minutes ago. The Bible says as follows follows in in verse 1, And as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel who were among them. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were warriors. And Adonai Sedech, king of Jerusalem, sent to Horam, king of Hebron, Pyram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua, with the people of Israel, and the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Why would this be relevant to the first historical audience to receive it? Here's why. You see, immediately following the fall of Ai, Gibeon used to hang out with the five kings heard that Israel was coming and they crafted a plan to go to the Israelites and make peace with them so that they wouldn't fall against them in war. The way that Gibeon went about making peace with the Israelites was that he pretended to be someone he, not, he was not. He deceived them, but they didn't consult with the Lord before going into an oath to make peace with Gibeon. So while they are held accountable to their oath before God not to kill the Gibeonites, it really was a relationship that was crafted in deceit. And I believe it brings us to our first point here in Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and that is if you want to have courageous faith, you got to learn to do two things, and that is to set aside both the weight and the sin that can so easily beset us. Where do I get that from? You see, Ai was Israel's first defeat. It was obvious sin. Someone in the camp took something and disobeyed God in a way that they, were, they, they disobeyed God. They did something they weren't supposed to do, and it resulted in a defeat. But the Gibeonites have now brought trouble to the doorstep, brought warfare to the doorstep of Israel. Now, the Gibeonite relationship is not a sinful one, but it is a weight. Think about what Hebrews chapter 12, verse one says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. You've got this race running dynamic that is pictured before us, and the faith walk is indeed a race to honor God. Now, as we're on that race, it says set aside the weight and the sin. They are two different things. It's obvious that you don't do what they did at Ai, but sometimes it isn't so obvious that you shouldn't do what they did with Gibeon. Let me explain. Sin is an obvious, that doesn't honor God. But weight can sometimes be things that we carry in our lives that make us less efficient in following through on what God has called us to do. Weight can bring about not only inefficiency, but in this case, Gibeon, it brings about unsolicited issues on their doorstep. For you and I, what is the weight? It is stuff that not only makes us less effective, but it's also things that I have a tendency to make peace with that should not be allowed to hang out in my life. Hear me clearly. Your Gibeon is anything in your life that you've made peace with that should not have been given any property in your character. Now, I would take you on an extended exercise and ask you to think about that for a moment, but, but just to kind of cut through that, I'll give you one of mine. So. Without gospel influence and, out, and the, the transformation of the Holy Spirit, I am a jerk. I am. I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy a certain kind of sense of humor that comes at the expense of others and a certain kind of sarcasm. And I have a certain edge to the way that I like to communicate that without gospel guidance makes me a jerk. Certified. Full-blown. I'm a jerk. However, if I make peace with that, in other words, well, you know, that's just I am who I am. You just got to deal with it, gospel hope. It becomes a liability to the thing that God wants to do in me. Why? Because where does sarcasm come from? Out of my mouth. Where does sharp humor come from? Out of my mouth. Where do sermons have to come from? Out of my mouth. And so these weights live right next door to these places where God wants to apply his grace. And if I'm just going, well, you know, I am who I am, it becomes counterintuitive and counterproductive to the thing that God wants to do most and show up best and biggest in my life. And so I have to always be on the lookout for not making peace with Gibeonites. Not making peace with stuff that naturally grows up in, in the next door to what God is doing in me and saying, well, you know, y'all can just hang out here for a while as long as you stay quiet. No, it has to be regularly wrestled with surrender to the Lord. So Lord, how do you want to use that place that can naturally produce sharp humor and jerkish sarcasm? How do you want to move in that area? How do you want to be glorified? How do I surrender that to you so that I don't make peace with that part of who I am? You see, sanctification is not binary. In other words, it isn't just like sin or not sin. Sanctification is progressive. There is stuff that it doesn't even look like sin because it's part of the natural cargo of who you are in your hearts and minds. It's just in there all the time. You grew up with it. And the Lord is like, I need to talk to you about that. I need to talk to you about that. I'm going I'm to tra- make you more like Jesus. That's, that's, that's unredeemed. I know it's natural to you, but give that to me. I know you've been around that all the time, but give that to me. I know that's how your family is. I need you to give that to me. That's a liability. That's a weight. You've been focused on sin. That's Christianity 101. That's good. But we're going to another class now. I want to make you more like my son Jesus Christ. There's some stuff that you've not been focusing on that you have made peace with that is a part of who you are. Oh, I'm just a naturally anxious person because I care a lot. How does the Lord want to redeem that natural place that without gospel influence becomes perpetual anxiety and worry? He doesn't want to reduce the fact that you care about things deeply. He just wants to talk to you about what you do with them and how you handle them. Because your first reflex is not going to be a gospel reflex. It'll be to just make peace with the fact that that's how I am. I've always been this way. Hey, I know that I'm loud. Hey, I know that I come off rude. Hey, I know that I have that that kind of personality. Don't make peace with stuff that's going to make you less productive in your walk with God and your development of courageous faith. Simply put, the closing point is this. Do not make peace with areas of your life that are really calling you to stop, replace, or to repent, or to hand them over to be redeemed. Do not make peace with those areas. Be on a regular lookout as the Lord is taking you on this journey. Because remember, the wins that God is making in your life isn't just about reaffirming the fact that God wins. He is saying that, absolutely. But notice that each one of Mike Tyson's fights, remember, we never questioned whether or not he would win. We just want to know how he would win and what that win said about him as a champion and what that win said about the nature of his opponents. The same thing in your faith. As God is winning these various battles in our lives, he is sending a very distinct message about how he wins and what his ways are as he is winning. Because God is not just winning against Eglon and Nakesh and the five kings of the Amorites. He's winning against some stuff that's right here in the Israelites and right here in you and me. Notice that in Joshua chapter 1, he says, be courageous, be courageous and have good faith. Be strong and do not waver. What the Lord is doing is showing them exactly how he plans to make them be people who can do that. So it's not just a declaration, but it's a demonstration of their daily lives. He asks them or tells them to be courageous people because now he's planning on making them courageous. Is this making sense to you? Look at verses 6 through 9. In verses 6 through 9, the Gibeonites um, reach out to Joshua and they says, Hey, uh, we're the Gibeonites over here. The five kings of the Amorites are coming over here to to, to sack us. Please don't stay your hand. Would you you come up and, and, and help us? And even though their relationship with them is contrived out of deceit, Joshua still comes to their defense. And so it says... So Joshua went up, this is verse seven. So Joshua went up from Gilgal and he and all the mighty men of war were with them of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them For I have given them into your hands, and not a man of them shall stand before you. And so Joshua came up suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, and he struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, chasing them by way of the ascent of Beth-Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah-Makeda. And as he fled before Israel, when they were going down the ascent of Beth-Horon, the Lord threw down large stones stones from heaven as far as Azekah, and they died, and there were more people who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed by the sword. The thing that I believe the Lord would have us to know is not only to set aside the weight and the sin that, that interrupts courageous faith, but also set your mind on this fact that the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. We need to know that the battle is the Lord's because the Scriptures, one, tell us that more people got whipped by the hailstones that God provided, than by the sword and the energy that they provided. The battle is the Lord's. This is key for us to remember. Not only that, but if you go further down to verses 12 through 13, the big miracle of the text occurs where Joshua says in the presence of God that the sun and the moon would stand still until all of Israel was to have mastery and revenge over their opponents. And so the Lord literally kept the light on until they finished the work. Now, this is so interesting. If God is the champion, why is it, why doesn't he just do all of the work? I believe because we need to understand that he's got the air game, but we are responsible for the ground game. Think about what the New Testament said to you directly. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in in heavenly places. Right where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the, fa- at the Father, right? right, interceding for us. But then what are we called to do even though the battle is not against flesh and blood? We are told to put on the whole armor. We are told to put on the gospel preparation on our feet, the, to be girded, with the, uh, to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to take up the shield of faith. We are told to, to dress out in a certain way and to walk out a certain way. Even though God's got the invisible war, we are called to participate in the practical one. And so while he's got the air game, we are called to work out the ground game. We are to have consistent follow through, even though God is, for, is forging and bringing about the winds. Why? Because that means of participation causes us to not just believe God, but to know him in a certain way. How many people in the room believe that an elephant is heavy? You believe it. You believe it? You believe it? Anybody in here? Everybody knows. Now, do you know why you believe that an elephant is is heavy? Some of you Googled it. You Googled it and you said, that sounds heavy. Some of you looked at how much an elephant weighs and you compared it to how much you weigh or how much your car weighs and you go, comparatively speaking, that's heavy. Some of you went to the zoo as a field trip in elementary school or you went with your kids present day and you're like, the elephant is far bigger than I am. The elephant is heavy. Maybe you even saw an elephant come through walking like a, like a, um, at a circus or something like that, and the ground shook. You were like, oh, an elephant is heavy. So you believe that an elephant is heavy. But let me tell you this. Nobody in this room knows that an elephant is heavy until he steps on your foot. You believe it. You have technical and statistical and experiential data that informs you that you should believe, but you know it when he steps on you. The Lord is good. Oh, we believe it. But there are certain battles that cause us to know it. The Lord is mighty. Oh, we believe it. Oh, we've been trained in the scriptures since Sunday school. We see the stories of his wins, but there are certain battles that he needs to, to, to affect in your life where you realize, oh, Not only do I believe that he is good, I know it. Not only do I believe that he he fights for me, I now know it. And so this is why I believe that the, 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 the five kings is so important. The fact that five kings would conspire against the children of Israel. They need to see the fact that it doesn't matter how many foes come against them, the Lord can still win. And guess what? We need to see that too. And I know that the prospect of that kind of faith is frightening, but I want you to understand that, the, that the, the Lord wants to increase our faith in proportion to our fight. Man, if you've been praying for faith, amen, you and I are going to get it. Even if you didn't pray for it, the Lord wants you to have it. But right alongside with the, the prayer for faith, the way that he does it is that our faith needs to increase for what though? Just so that we can have a, 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 you know, a higher prayer answer ratio? No, our faith needs to increase so that we have a deeper knowing of God. And one of the ways that we know him is how he steps in on our behalf when we're in some of the toughest situations in our lives. I would say this, don't let the size of your issue convince you that God is not with you. It would have been very easy when you heard, out, heard that the five kings had conspired against Israel. to to believe somehow that he wasn't going to be with them or that, that, Lord, you've whipped one king before, but he took a number of different kings down in this particular moment. But he allowed Israel to participate so that they could see the win. Final portion of the story that I'll take is found right here in Joshua chapter 10, verses 22 through 25. In 22 through 25, something really interesting happens. As the five kings are being defeated, they run into a cave. And Joshua instructs the Israelites to go and seal the cave with the five kings inside. After the battle is complete, they come back and they take the five kings. And there's this really interesting gesture. Verse 22, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out from took to me from the cave. And when they did so, he brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king, roll call, the king of Eglon. And when he brought those five kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come now and put your feet on the necks of these kings. I believe that the third component of building courageous faith is that we need to set our feet on the necks of whatever is stealing our faith. You need, you and I need to set our feet. Figuratively, what does it mean? And practically, what does it look like? For the, for the captains of the, the war amongst the Israelites to put their feet on the necks of these five kings would let them know both symbolically and practically that the Lord is fighting on your behalf and there is nothing that will stand in your way as long as you honor God. But they needed to see that. And we sometimes need to see it as well. I want you to pay careful attention to also the five kings. One of them, the first one's name is Adonai Zedek. And what is he king over? He's king of Israel. He's king of Jerusalem. So interesting. I thought Jerusalem was like, you know, a godly city. So the, so the name Jerusalem means place or possession of peace. But who's ruling it? It's a, it's a king whose name is Adonai Zedek. He's not one of God's people. His name means uh, my God is righteous, but it's not the God of the Bible. So it's a false god ruling over stolen peace. Follow me very carefully. In every one of our lives, you've got five kings. You've got a counterfeit king who is ruling property and space in your life that owns and has territory that should belong to the Lord that needs to be taken. You need to put your feet on the neck of whatever that is. I don't know if it's a habit. I don't know if it's a lifestyle know if it's a relationship. I don't know if it's a past memory. I don't know what it is, but there's something in your life that you need to put your foot on the neck of. Now, you're doing it not as a declaration that you're winning, but that God has already won. Because this same activity of taking enemies and publicly embarrassing them is exactly what the Bible says that Jesus did at the cross in Christ in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He has disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So, one of the fundamental reflections of the gospel is that God not only, Jesus, voluntarily gave his life it wasn't taken or stolen he voluntarily gave it he gave it substitutionarily that is in our place it should have been us it was necessary because it satisfied the wrath of God which would have been against us but then it also says and don't ever forget this he was victoriously raised over sin death and the devil the raising of Jesus was not just a great trick or a super miracle it says that in Jesus being raised that anything that was written against us was nailed to the cross and all the things that the enemy would say about us and come against us with was nailed to the cross And all of the enemies of God's people, according to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, were disarmed and rulers and authorities were put to open shame. Jesus, in being raised from the dead, triumphs over all that seeks to rob God's people of their peace and to get together and steal their faith. And in our lives, we all have some variation of the five kings. Maybe it's a past indiscretion, which is the biggest blunder you ever made in your life. And on a regular basis, the enemy tries to remind you of that. Why? It's a false and counterfeit king that is trying to rob you of your peace. Maybe you've got a false sense of self-righteousness, right? So Adonai Zedek, it's not real righteousness, but there's a false sense of self-approval and strength that you've been working under for years. And the Lord says, we got to put our feet on that king's neck. You don't have a righteousness of your own. Maybe again, it's a, maybe it's a memory. Maybe it's a past. It's something that keeps trying to creep up. And, they're, they're, and at times in your life, they come together as a group to launch an attack on your faith. And God says, I don't want any of that to have any property or any territory in your life, emotionally or intellectually. And what do you do? What is your gesture? What is our gesture of putting our feet on the necks of these defeated kings? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 through 9 say these words. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are divine or mighty through God to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take captive to obey them to Christ. In other words, in our lives, there will always be opinions, self impressions, things that we've grown to believe about ourselves and about God that are lies that need to be regularly preached to. I know preaching might might be your thing, so perhaps you just do this in the car by yourself. But you need to regularly know the gospel and preach it to yourself first and foremost, reminding you of what God has done on your behalf to build up courageous faith. Go behind the grocery store so that nobody can see you or wherever you have. Lock the door to your office, but you need to go somewhere and remind yourself, preach the gospel to yourself. Put your feet on the necks of the issues in your life preach the gospel to your sin every time it reoccurs in your life remind your sin that it is an enemy that has already been dethroned and defeated and you are just about to participate in what god has already done as a demonstration or declaration of victory maybe you need to preach it to your situation perhaps you're going through something right now that is incredibly threatening seriously depressing It is just robbing you of comfort, and your faith is not where it needs to be. Call it by name, whether it be a disease, whether it be a a certain disappointing scenario, preach the gospel to yourself, to your situations, and to your sin so that you are building up your faith. It might sound silly, but look at the gesture here in the Scripture. One, we might have thought it was silly to walk around the walls of Jericho. We might have thought it was silly to put our feet on the necks of of five kings, but that's what God called his people to do because those gestures are not only symbolic, they are also sanctifying. And so, I would beg us to remember these things when we're fighting for faith, that every battle that you have encountered and every battle that you will encounter, is not an issue of whether or not God will win. He is sending a very specific message as to how he wins, which one of his punches, what kind of strength, what particular attribute is on display what time of day what passage of scripture which facet of the gospel which function of the lord jesus christ which expression of the truthfulness of god this is what god wants you to see as he's throwing punches on your behalf that's why the opponents are who they are that's why we look at the tail of the tape that's why we do not want to forget god's past work because we want to make sure we are building in our own souls a resume of courageous faith based on what god has already done on our behalf. Each one of his wins tells us something about his ways. Mike Tyson as a champion is now and always was a mere man. He's somewhat of a a cultural icon, but no one takes him seriously as a professional boxer. This is not the case with your God. He does not age. He has not gotten old. He has not passed his prime. The miracles and the strength of God as depicted in the Old Testament, they are not seen on some screen in black and white, and we wish we had a champion like that. No, he is the same God today, yesterday, and forevermore. You still have a champion in Christ, and you have a champion whose life is faithful. He doesn't have anybody in his entourage that means him ill, and if they do, they won't stop him. You have a real champion who you can not only be a fan of, but who you can follow and who is fighting on your behalf. This is who we have in God. And you can have courageous faith because of that fact. But know this, do not shrivel when your life is confronted with with a battle that is statistically above and beyond anything you've ever encountered before. Because the intensity of the battle is designed to increase the quality of your faith. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you for every time you will walk us through your word and give us another glimpse of yourself. I beg and ask this morning, O oh God, that you would build up our faith, even my faith, to trust you even more in light of the challenges we have ahead. May we never forget. Lord God, even if we are a person who forgets everything, we can't even find our keys five minutes from now, but Lord God, may we never forget your good work in our life and in our past. Should we be, help us to become people who would write these things down, Lord God, to do whatever we have to do to rem- remind ourselves of your past faithfulness so that our faith would be all the more courageous. We pray this in Jesus' name. Man, if you're here today and you are hearing the story of a God, the God of the Bible, and you say to yourself, man, that sounds like the God of the Bible. I would love for the God like that to be available in my life today, but I just don't see that kind of God available today. That seems very historical. Well, the reason that the Word of God is given to us, it is for our learning today. If you are a person who wants to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, trust me, it is available today. The same God who is depicted in today's story in the book of Joshua, the same God from the book of Genesis, the same God that you may have learned about as a child or you may have heard about in passing, that same God is just as powerful today. And one of the first ways that he wants to demonstrate his power is over your past over your sin, over anything in your life that is purposing to have power over you to control you. You do not have to operate under the control of anything from your past, no regardless of how much of it or how loud of it it might be. I want to invite you this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, or you may have heard his name, and you may believe that he's real, but now you are feeling the weight of God in the room, and you're saying, Lord, I want to know you. Man, if that's you, I want to pray for you. I wanna pray for you. I wanna introduce you to this Jesus that I've just been talking about. I would love to pray for you. And if that's you, I mean, whether you wanna slip your hand up, if you wanna come find me after the service, I want to pray for you. As a matter of fact, I want to pray again. Will you join me in that? Will you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, there's a person in the room, there's maybe there's two or maybe there's three who is curious about your son, Jesus Christ, but more than curious, Lord God, but brought to a place of wanting to know you more deeply. Lord God, I pray for, and I pray with that person, Lord, would you save them? Lord, would you draw them? Lord, would you move on their hearts even now, Lord God, to pray to you and say, Lord, I may not know everything about you, but I know I need you. Would you save me? Whatever that means and whatever that requires, Lord, would you save me? Lord God, Would you reach him? Lord God, would you also reach the person who knows that they know you, but man, they just had a deeply troubled season in their life and they have walked away from you. They've repurposed it and rebranded it. Maybe it's church hurt. They've rebranded it as all kinds of hurt, Lord God, but really they're disappointed in you. And as a result of their disappointment, Lord God, they hadn't been in church in years, but now they're creeping back. Maybe they're online, maybe they're viewing this uh, virtually, or maybe they're right here, oh God. Would you remind that person that you're interested, Lord God? You're still interested? And while they may be disappointed in you, that you're not disappointed in them. And that you're interested, Lord God, in having a relationship with them. I pray for that person, oh God, that they would move forward in faith. That they would follow through on what they know to be true about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you felt any one of those prayers landed on your address, I want to talk to you. And I know that right now it might be deeply inconvenient, but there's members of our prayer team that are also here. If you're part of our prayer team, would you just kind of put your hand up if you're in the room? Also, any of our community group leaders, if you're a community group leader, would you just kind of put your hand up? There you go. You see these hands that are up? These are people who could talk more with you about this prayer you just prayed or these things that you're thinking about if you don't feel like you can get to me or you don't feel comfortable with that. But don't leave here without talking to someone if one of those prayers was yours. Amen? Let's worship him.